0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 249th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this is now but one of three podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. The others being It Happened in Hollywood, on which Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope take deep dives into major pop culture moments in Hollywood history, and Behind the Screen, featuring Carolyn Giardina's conversations with artists who work behind the scenes in the business. Be sure to subscribe to all three podcasts today. My guest today is a living legend, someone who has arguably shaped the average American's television viewing experience over the last 40 years more than any other figure, James Burroughs. Described by the New York Times as, quote, the most wanted man in television, close quote, Burroughs is among the most prolific and talented directors of situational comedies or sitcoms taped in front of live audiences in TV history, with more than 1,000 episodes to his name and a particular specialty in making pilots, those standalone episodes of prospective TV series from which TV networks then decide whether or not to order a full season of a show. Indeed, as someone said while presenting Burroughs with the Directors Guild of America's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015, quote, James Burroughs has made more pilots than a hooker at an airport hotel, close quote. Among them, Taxi, Cheers, Night Court, Wings, Friends, Friends, Will and Grace, Third Rock from the Sun, The Big Bang Theory, and more than 50 others. He has also won 10 Emmys, 5 DGA Awards, and the Television Critics Association's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014. And today, at 77, he's still going strong, directing every episode of the rebooted Will & Grace, just as he directed every episode of its original run that began 20 years ago. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Burroughs and I discussed a wide range of topics, including his father, Abe Burroughs, a legendary man of the theater how an association with Mary Tyler Moore led him into a different medium, TV, and to his first directing opportunities in the multi-cam sitcom format, why, with Taxi, his first major pilot, he began using a fourth camera, which has since become popular in television, how he wound up a central figure of NBC's must-see TV era with Cheers, which he co-created and presided over for 11 seasons, and then Frasier, Friends, and Will & Grace, how he became the pilot whisperer why he prefers TV directing to film directing, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Natalie Jarvie, THR's digital media editor, who recently oversaw a lot of our October 31st digital issue and wrote its cover story, The Plan to Fix Vice. The piece profiles Nancy Dubuque, the former A&E Network CEO and perennial spot holder on THR's annual list of the 100 Most Powerful Women in Entertainment, as she tries to right the ship of a giant media company that was jarred by 2017 reports in the Daily Beast and the New York Times of a toxic work environment, leading to co-founder Shane Smith taking on the reduced and far less visible role of executive chairman and Dubuque coming aboard in May as Vice's new CEO. Natalie, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So let's imagine that someone listening to this has never heard of Vice. Can you please provide a little history about how this company, which, as your piece states, was founded as a niche print magazine in Montreal back in 1994, grew into an international media power with, get this, 3,000 employees working in 39 offices around the world with a presence in the spaces of cable TV, film, news, music, and branded content valued at $5.7 billion. That's a lot of ground to cover in 24 years.
1: It absolutely is, and it's a pretty amazing story. Like you said, they started as a a kind of punk rock magazine in Montreal, eventually moved to Brooklyn before it was cool to live in Brooklyn, got some investment money, worked there for a few years. Things got a little bit bumpy, but then in the early 2000s, they caught the attention of MTV they did a partnership and that kind of spurred on the the new vice as we know it and you know through the incredible salesmanship of their founder Shane Smith this company continued to get investments from 21st century fox, Rupert Murdoch, Bob Iger and Disney and you know just kind of was able to over several years boost the valuation to a point where suddenly it was this 6 billion dollar company with these major media companies invested and expecting that they were really going to be the future of, of media and, and help these kind of legacy outlets figure out how to do digital and how to reach younger audiences as they increasingly don't watch television, don't go to movie theaters.
0: Well, so in terms of audience size, how does Vice compare to its rivals these days? And what makes it as valuable as we've said it is, even as it struggles to turn a profit, you mentioned it missed its 2017 revenue goal of $805 million by more than $100 million. So why is it still such a hot property?
1: The thing that's interesting about Vice is that they have always been valued based on their potential to reach this really hard to reach audience, these millennial men. And so while their audience right now is at around 68 million per month, and that's lower than like Vox Media, higher than BuzzFeed.
0: This is the website. Uh,
1: yes, their yeah. website. What they were able to do was create this brand that was really valuable. And and the first kind of thing that they did was a deal with HBO that got their news show Vice on HBO every Every week. And it created this brand recognition that was really important. And then they increased that deal. They got another show on HBO. They launched a cable network. And all of these things add up to suddenly you've got this brand that many people do recognize. Yeah. And and that's worth a lot, even if their audience isn't always as large as some of their competitors. Yeah.
0: So tell us a little bit about Nancy Dubuque's career pre-Vice. She went back for like 20 years at A&E Network. So what brought her there? What made her name there? And why did she decide to leave?
1: Yeah, she was one of those, you know, kind of classic entertainment executives, rose up the ranks, started out as a programmer, worked at the History Channel, made her name picking hits. She was the reason that Ice Road Truckers went on the air and then later Duck Dynasty. And she had this great innate sense for what was going to work with the A&E audience. And over time, that proved well. She's very ambitious, very hardworking, and she worked really hard to get to the top to become CEO. And she'd been CEO for a few years now. But, you know, I think from, from spending time with her, her, it sounded like she was ready for a change. You know, she sees that the world is changing, that subscribers are leaving cable television. There's not a lot you can do to get them to come back. And as a result, she started thinking about what could be her next act. And I think Vice was really appealing to her as kind of a challenge and and something she could take on as... She thought about, you know, the kind of third stage of her career.
0: Yeah. Well, she's the first outside CEO in Vice's history. She's meant to represent change. It was a very male-dominated culture. She's obviously a woman. But she also came into the fold back in 2014, under the Smith era, when AE Networks decided to invest $250 million in Vice and she became the company's first female board member. It seems like she continues to consult closely with Smith. She told you that they text a lot. Also, we saw that Smith wouldn't speak to you without her being on the phone. So why did she want this particular job of kind of cleaning up their mess? And can one really believe the claims that she and he make that there really is a new regime there?
1: Yeah. So, you know, going back to her relationship with Shane, that did really start when she uh, led A&E's investment in Vice in 2014, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that they they have a lot of mutual respect for one another. They're both incredibly ambitious. And while Shane Smith is known for being kind of this brash salesman type persona. And (laughs) uh, yeah, Yes, that too. Uh, You know, they both, I think, have big goals. And I don't know that there are a lot of people that Shane would have trusted to take over his company. And, And she really... Earned his trust over the last several years, so you know it's interesting. They do talk a lot. She's been very clear; it's her company. She's running it. Shane is not involved in the day-to-day any longer. He's off traveling around the world reporting for the Vice HBO show, but she does keep him apprised. He's still executive chairman. He's on the board, and and you know she she said that they text you know weekly, if not more than that. In terms of of you know the challenge that she faces in cleaning up this company. You know, I think that, and I have a quote in there in my story from, they have a diversity and inclusion board that they created after some of these news reports started to come out.
0: Gloria Steinem. So, yeah. And a whole bunch of people. All
1: sorts of um, imp- impressive names and, and you know, the woman who chairs it, Robbie Kaplan, is a a well-known lawyer and she said, you know, the most symbolic thing that the company could have done was to put a woman in charge. And Nancy has been very clear that she is not going to tolerate sexual harassment or impropriety. She wants to create an inclusive environment. And so that's kind of the first step for that. The second step is that they have put a number of policies in place. They created this diversity and inclusion board. They are promising to reach pay parity by the end of of the year. She said it. they are on track to reach that goal. So, you know, they're certainly following up their promises and putting those things in action. Now, it doesn't mean that when you've got a 3,000 person company that everyone's going to immediately change mm-hmm. their ways. And she's going to probably have to deal with that. I'm sure that there will be more departures of of some of the executives and people that, that Shane and his co-founders brought in. But at least from the outside, she's certainly, you know, backing up the, the promises that they've yeah. made.
0: So since coming aboard in May, I know that she has obviously been dealing with the culture stuff that we've been talking about, but also other things, including, first and foremost, I think, trying to figure out how to keep Vice as hip as it's always tried to be. That's such a central part of its brand. And I think she's discovered that young people of Generation Z, I guess the, the demo of young people they hope to reach today, is markedly different than Generation X and Y. Can you explain what that's all about and how they are planning to move forward as a result of that better understanding.
1: Yeah, so Gen Z is the generation below millennials that are just now graduating from college. So they're starting to enter the workforce and the interesting thing, there's been a lot of studies recently, and Vice itself recently conducted a study of its own employees who are Gen Z and and also people who would be part of its audience. And what they found is that Gen Z is a lot more earnest. They're looking for content that encourages them to participate and makes them feel good. And it's it's very different than the kind of punk rock ethos that Vice started as. And so as a result, you know, I think they are thinking about what can they do to you know, not change everything that they're, that they're creating, but maybe shift the tone a little bit, maybe find some ways to, you know, encourage people to participate in, you know, say elections or, you know, giving back or whatever it happens to be. Uh, And that is something that they're going to have to figure out. I mean, the challenge of being a youth media company is that people age and they age out of being youthful so to speak and you know the oldest millennials now are are 38 so you know they're suddenly leaving the demo that that vice has long kind of focus on and they that is a challenge you have to constantly reinvent and and think about how do you attract new people as as your kind of core audience continues to grow up
0: i love the line in there like now they've concluded for Gen Z, square is hip. <laughs> it's hip to
1: be square. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it really is true. It's fascinating. I mean, there there was a great Wall Street Journal article a couple weeks ago that looked at Gen Z and how, you know, they don't, they don't party as much as millennials. And, you know, their behaviors are really vastly different. Wow.
0: Well, last thing is just looking ahead to the future of Vice. Maybe you can tease some of the programming that Nancy Dubuque is preparing to roll out and also talk about what becomes of the HBO relationship with Vice. My sense was that Sheila Nevins, who had run HBO documentaries for years, was essentially part of the reason that she ended up leaving was she felt that HBO had, in terms of nonfiction programming, essentially been taken over by Vice. But if that relationship is now growing apart in some way, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, including the fact that HBO is now going to have to refocus on its own nonfiction. So anyway, I guess where, where you have... Smith and Dubuque saying that Vice is no longer a, quote, digital media business, close quote. What is it and what can we expect from them?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Vice today has their websites. They have a bunch of digital brands like Munchies for food, Noisy for music. They also have Viceland, their cable channel. It's it's pretty low rated. It's only in about 70 million homes in the U.S. So it's not as widely distributed as a lot of cable channels. And obviously the cable business is difficult right now, but people are just aren't subscribing to cable in the same way. So that's something that they're going to have to figure out. And one thing that they're doing on the, on the Viceland front is in the first quarter of the year, they're going to roll out a two-hour live program that will be four nights a week, Monday through Thursday, I believe. Mm -hmm it's going to be kind of like a panel of hosts that will, you know, comment on the the week's happenings and news and, you know, have in-person guests and, you know, go to like live shots in New York and around the world where they have bureaus and it's it's supposed to be kind of like fun and their their version of like a late night show, mm-hmm. so to speak. And obviously live is really key because that uh, is what keeps people coming back. You know, you're not going to probably watch something on demand later that happened live. You want watch it in the moment so that's their big push there on the other side of the vice business they also on the tv side at least they also have their relationship with hbo they have two shows right now on hbo Vice and Vice News Tonight. Vice is a weekly show. Vice News Tonight is daily. And you're right. They do have a lot of programming on HBO. And they that was a, a deal that they got done a couple years ago to really kind of expand their relationship. And what I've been hearing is that they're currently in the process of kind of renegotiating that deal, figuring out what the right kind of mix of Vice on HBO is. And most likely, the weekly show will not return. They will still have the daily show. Richard Plepler this year as quoted in my piece, they're still very committed to vice programming. It's not that that relationship is going to end, but it is a bit confusing to have two shows that both have vice in the name that are you know, weekly, daily. Well, so. there's
0: another network called Viceland. Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it, it, it's most likely that they're going to kind of redo that deal in some way.
0: Well, very interesting story. Congratulations. And thanks for coming on, Natalie Jarvie. Thanks. And now for my interview with James Burroughs. All right, Mr. Burroughs, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I know your father is going to factor into this a lot, so maybe we can start with that.
2: I was born in Los Angeles, lived here for five years, my parents moved back, and I was raised in New York City.
0: And your folks' professions?
2: My father was a radio writer who became a Broadway playwright and director. And my mom was a, I hate to say housewife, but she was a mom.
0: Yeah. So your father was not just any playwright. He was a Pulitzer winner. He's behind many things that people still know and love today, Guys and Dolls and so many others. And I guess that from what I was able to gather preparing for this, you were shadowing him from a very early age. And I just wonder what the the main takeaways were Originally, that was just as a son will sometimes go with a father to work, but then it became a more formal thing. So just what were the takeaways from your, you know, observing your father?
2: Well, I like to say that my father taught me when I didn't know I was learning. (laughs) He would occasionally trundle me off to a rehearsal, and I would run around the theater and, uh, you know, play hide and seek with anybody else who was there while he was rehearsing the cast. Uh, You know, I had no aspirations to be in, in show business at all. My father was a legend in New York City. I lived in New York City. I I wanted to do anything but be in the theater. So I learned by just being around.
0: And so when you went off to Oberlin College, then Yale School of Drama, what were you thinking you were going to do with your life after that? It wasn't what it's ended up being. So what was it?
2: Well, I didn't really know. know. I had no aspirations. I had no passions then. I I, I went to Oberlin College, which was a somewhat radical school. And uh, at the end of my sophomore years, they said to me, you have to pick a major. So I, I picked the only major I knew that I could fit in two years, which was government. Uh-huh. And I didn't participate in theater there or anything like that. I would go to movies. But, you know, show business was not for me back then. And You know, then when I got out, I had to figure out what I was going to do. My father never pushed me. Mm -hmm. When I got out of college, it was 62, and the Vietnam War was happening, so that there were a lot of young people being called up to serve in the Army and the uh, Armed Forces, and uh, I was not too fond of that because of the nature of the war. Mm -hmm. You know, I said to my dad, "What? you know, maybe I should go to graduate school. He agreed, and I went to the Yale School of Drama. And at that point, at that school, I started to have some semblance of what I could do and what I couldn't do. I
0: heard that while you were on the playwriting track there, Stacey Keach was on the acting track? Stacey
2: was an actor. In fact, uh, we, as a playwright, you have to uh, participating in an acting class. So I was in acting one my first year, and Connie Welch was a famous teacher there. And she said, uh, I'm going to show you what it's all about. And put Stacy on stage, mm-hmm. and everybody was a gog. <laughs> he was brilliant. He has he has a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've worked with him since yeah. and stuff like that. So, you know, Stacy was there, and Robert Klein was in my class.
0: It sounds like you learned a lot about actors, which was obviously useful later on. That's you've always been talked about as somebody who's great, particularly at working with actors. Do you think it's because you were taking it in even back then?
2: You're also, in that acting class, you have to do a scene. So uh, I did a monologue from uh, Beyond the Fringe. Mm -hmm. The judge, you know, I could have been a judge if I hadn't the Latin. I never had the Latin for the judge. and I remember the (laughs) conversation that goes on down in the (laughs) mine. Hello, I found a lump of coal. (laughs) Be careful, drop it on your foot there. Hey, hey, hey. What, me drop a lump of coal on my foot? Ha, 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 ow. I've (laughs) dropped it on my foot. That was Peter Cook. who uh, You know, I'd seen that show. and in 62 or 63 and just just blew me away and so i you know i i i got to understand what actors were about a little bit and then from watching my dad Mm -hmm. who treated actors with the utmost respect and was gifted showed me ways to get what you want yet make the actors feel like they're responsible and using what they say as helping you stuff so So my experience there was at Yale really kind of pointed me in the right direction.
0: So you graduated from Yale School of Drama in 65. And then despite the fact that that had been the playwriting track that you were on there, you go to L.A. where there isn't all that much theater. So what were you thinking at that point?
2: Well, I went to L.A. Well, by the way, I was a terrible playwright. I was (laughs) awful. I wrote one play to graduate and... It's Henrik Chekhov, I like to say, <laughs> or Astrid Ibsen. You know, it's just, you know, it's just horrible. Uh, you know, I would do, sacrifice a character for a joke, and it was just, you know, nobody will ever see it. I went there to work, actually work on a um, television series my dad helped create called OK Crackerby starring Burl Lives. Mm-hmm. And I... Was Burlive's dialogue coach?
0: Meaning, you would run lines with him, or what was well, that? Well,
2: I had to make sure it was Jimmy Crackcorn. He had to know those three. No, I would run lines with him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I got, to, you know, I got to meet Rod Amato, who's a famous director then, and Norman Henry, who was a producer then. And uh, I was next door. The this show was next door to my mother, The Car, which was filming then. Who, one of the creators of that was Alan Burns. So, you know, the tentacles started to go out. So. I worked and that was canceled and uh, I went back to New York.
0: And I guess back there you were doing a, a number of things in the theater, but ultimately you wind up working on this show that your dad was doing a version of Breakfast at Tiffany's with, of all people, Mary Tyler Moore. And I heard it was a, a disaster of a show, but it was obviously in the long run, a, the beginning of a beautiful friendship in a way. So can you connect the dots there?
2: When I went back to New York, the first job I had was driving a truck for Goober Ford & Gross, which was a uh, summer stock theater. So I was in charge of taking the set from one theater after it was done on Saturday night and Sunday driving it to the next theater. So that was my job. But then my father wrote this musical, Breakfast at Tiffany's, starring uh, Richard Chamberlain and Mary Tyler Moore. And I was hired as the third assistant stage manager, and my job was to make sure that Mary and Dick, who were newcomers to the theater, when the show was on, they I would come and get them when their cues were, when they would come off stage and take them back to their dressing room, make sure they made it back. So I was kind of their liaison. Mm-hmm. And when they were hungry, I would get them food during rehearsal, everything like that. And then the show, it was not my father's best work. Mm-hmm. He was he was not in great shape when he wrote it. And so we were out of town. I had a huge advance was produced by david merrick and mr merrick decided that my father was not the right person for the role so that he replaced him with uh, a man who was m- known for his musical comedies edward Albee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so i said to my dad i said pop can i stay on yeah. can i stay on he said sure so they replaced my father as a director too and so i stayed on it was my job to go to edward's house and get the rewrites and bring him up and the show was just ill-fated. We we never we were out of town with my father's version, but when Edward came in, we, had, we went back to New York and rehearsed and everything like that. And we uh, we started to preview the show, and it was just it was it was not very good. It was not it was not well received. The audience talked back. Ugh. So every night we ran for four nights. Every night <laughs> Mary was a basket case when she came off at the end of the show. And she would collapse in my arms and you know everything like that and so on the show was canceled wednesday night we we had opened on a monday mm-hmm. we had this party at sardis and grant came her husband she was married to grant, grant tinker, tinker yeah. then and um, you know it was just you know we all bonded in this lifeboat <laughs> then i didn't see her for a while but uh, i went on to stage manage plays for my father i did 40 Carrots, and i would then Direct the it was Julie Harris, and then when she left, I directed June Allison to replace her. and Then Jaja Gabor directing
0: as a stage manager, secondary stage manager. Because yeah. and I heard that originally it's you're working with understudies, right?
2: Right. You as a stage manager, you're responsible for the understudies. That means if an actor gets can't make it or something like that, you have an understudy who goes on in his place. And then through Jaja, believe it or not, I got i got a gig in san diego because she was going to do it in san diego 40 carats they wanted me to do this, is this like dinner theater or what it, it was no it was a place called the off-broadway theater okay so i could wrangle jaja i mean <laughs> that's on my resume right <laughs> i know she was she treated me wonderfully yeah. she was she was so sweet to me she we were down in san diego uh, running i was down running in this theater and she lived up here and whenever i come up for casting or anything like that, she would invite me over for dinner and she would literally make me say a goulash, which is um, peasant goulash <laughs> right. from Hungary. Right. And so, you know, and I started to do, you know, my people noticed my work down in San Diego and I started to get directing in other dinner theaters and uh, ended up in, I, I was in a dinner theater in Wallingford, Connecticut mm-hmm. doing Joan Fontaine in 40 Characters. Oh my God. And I went home one night and after rehearsal and I turned on the television there was a Mary Tyler Moore show
0: which had now exploded right now
2: yeah, exploded and it was a live multicam show in front of a live audience and it was you know they were filming theater and I said wow you know I'm doing I'm doing a two-hour show in a week and these people are doing 20 minutes 25 minutes in a week so I, I wrote Mary a letter and said, I would love to be able to have a shot to do your show. And about 10 days, 12 days later, I got a letter from Grant Tinker and they said they would love to have me. And they brought me out for one show and the rest is history. Well, yeah,
0: but I mean, I guess it's it's kind of amazing because at that point, you'd never directed for the screen before, right? No. And it's it's not that multi cam tv was new at that point i mean it had been around since what i love lucy yeah i love lucy right so what do you think caused the realization the epiphany there watching the the show that this was something you could do
2: i think the mary connection i know because it was her and i said wow i know her i probably can get you know yeah i can write her a letter and you know i didn't know dick van dyke i didn't know lucy i didn't know norman lear yeah. But I knew her, so I wrote her this letter, and I came out in, in May of 1974.
0: And it was specifically to direct an episode, or did you have to kind of prove your chops to get that chance? I had read one thing that said you initially were apprenticing there at MTM Productions.
2: I was—I uh, I had to observe, mm-hmm. because there is some technical work required in it when you're doing a television show as opposed to the theater— Back then there were three cameras, so you have to learn about how to move the cameras and so the cameras capture the action. So I had to watch for a while. Mm-hmm. So I watched for about four or five months.
0: Who were you watching? Who some I, people? I
2: watched uh I started on the New Heart show mm-hmm. and then I went to the Mary show and I watched my mentor, Jay Sandrich.
0: I wanted to ask you about him because a lot of people have you as the person they look to as the, the great T V director for you. It was it
2: was him. It was him. Why is that? Because, you know, I watched the Newhart people. I watched four or five Newharts before I went to Mary, and you had very subservient directors on those shows. And then when I went over to the Mary Tyler Moore show, and I watched Jay work and Jay's collaboration with the writers and standing up for what he believed in, and I was inspired by him. And so Jay and I became great friends.
0: Interestingly enough, both sons of great, artists as oh, well, right?
2: Dad Mark was uh, was a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, we became friends. Jay was had uh, just split up from his wife, so, and I was not married, so we became really really close friends. And he was so sweet to me. I remember on the first show I did, I remember coming to a point in the show where Ted Knight entered. And there was a line screw up. So when that happens on the multicams, you you back them up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And I said, N- uh, let's back it up to Mary's line. And from the booth, I hear, back it up to Ted's entrance. And I looked up there, and there was Jay. So for
0: the full comedic effect to have. No,
2: for the be- ability to cut. I got to it. have a clean cut. You know, I was new. You right. know, it was a lot to learn back right. then. And so that was, you know, that was so sweet to me. So, you know, he's been my mentor. He still is my mentor. Yeah,
0: amazing. Well, you directed four episodes, from what I was able to find, of Mary Tyler Moore. This is between 74 and 76. Is it true that you got in the habit of wearing a coat and tie to direct because that's what your dad did when he was in theater?
2: No, I think I did it because... I don't know why I did i I'm trying to remember what Jay wore. Mm-hmm. I usually did what Jay did, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't remember. I remember, you know, Noam Pitlick wore a T-shirt, you know. <laughs> so I just, you know, my father always dressed up. When I used to travel, I would put a, a suit and a tie on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the only person that still does it is... Uh, John Landis, or I, I, I don't know, if, even know if Chris Nolan does not anymore. Yeah. I wear them to shoot. Yeah. I don't wear them to work. I wear a, a jacket and a tie. Right. Plus, it gets cold in there, right? So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about, I, I think
0: the run of shows that I'm going to mention now, the others that I see you were directing around that time were also under the MTM umbrella, and so I assume that's how they came about. But I'm going to just mention a bunch of the shows you were doing right after or, or even maybe overlapping with the time you were Doing Mary Tyler Moore. Phyllis, 19 episodes between 75 and 76. The Bob Newhart Show, 11 episodes between 76 and 77. Tony Randall Show, four episodes between 76 and 77. Laverne and Shirley, eight episodes between 76 and 77. Luke Grant, one episode in 77. Rhoda, four episodes, 77 to 78. Were those all
2: at MTM where you're, as you're kind of learning to do what you do? No, Laverne and Shirley was paramount. Okay. MTM, Mary Tyler Moore, at that point, the production company, had four or five sitcoms going. Mm-hmm. So after my first show, you know, I'll never forget, uh, just before we shot, I was walking to the stage, and Mary came out of her trailer and said, I think our investment in you has worked out. And, you know, I did a show which was not a very good show.
0: The first episode. The first
2: met. episode I did was not a very good show. Mm-hmm. But I invoked I literally invoked uh, I I invoked Chekhov Mm -hmm. in that show and and I involved you know I tried to create bits and everything like that so they responded to that Mm -hmm. so if a new director was successful on one of their shows he got a chance to go on the other shows so that's why I got a chance to do that to do those and then the Laverne Shirley came because I think Jim Brooks and Gary Marshall were friends and so Gary called me and asked me to come over and do those shows
0: Who were some of the other people at MTM when you were
2: there? Gary David Goldberg, Mm -hmm. Hugh Wilson was there, Patchett and Tarsus.
0: Why was it you've said that it was the Newhart episodes, maybe one even specifically, that really taught you about multicam directing? Why is that?
2: I think it was a Newhart episode, not one I did. It was one that I watched when I was first out. It was, was directed by Alan Rafkin was a wonderful director and he was the first guy I saw use four cameras and so I you know I was it was my third show watching I didn't quite understand all the machinations of the cameras but I kind of got why he had extra cameras it was easier because the first time an audience sees a joke you want to capture that joke and he had a scene of eight or nine people in the scene So he had extra camera to make sure that you caught the joke the first time. So, you know, and the more shows I did, the cameras became easier for me. So
0: I know that you, I think, popularized the idea of the four cams with Taxi, which I want to ask you about now. This is 75 of the 114 episodes that ran of the show between 78 and 82. How did that show come about? It was the first time that you had directed a
2: pilot, right? I had done a couple of pilots before that. Had they gone? The first pilot I did did not go. But Taxi was about, I think, the third or fourth pilot I did.
0: And for people who are listening and may not know what we're talking about, can you explain what pilot season is and why it exists?
2: Pilot season is the time in February, March, and April when the networks pick up scripts that they like and they film... One episode of the particular script, uh, they film that episode, and if they like that episode, they they call it a pilot episode, and it leads to the show being picked up in an order of 13 episodes comes based on that.
0: So back then when you are first getting into pilots, and, and also now, I don't know if the answer's changed, but how do you prepare to direct a pilot? Because you're basically setting the tone and the style of the show, right?
2: That is correct, yes, yeah. Well, the first thing has to be you have to like the script, like the characters, like the situation. And then the next thing is you have to meet the writers and you have to find out if you can work with the writers. And I mean, this is me now back in the old days. You just did it. I just did it. I didn't care if somebody ordered me a pile. In fact, the first agent I ever had and the only agent I've ever had is is a man named Bob Broder. And the only reason I had him is he was Jay Sandrich's agent. Wow. So I figured if I... I, if I get Jay Sandrich's agent, then all the scripts Jay turns down, I can do. <laughs> so that's what I look for now. And then comes the casting process and shit happens after yeah, that. Yeah. But but the first thing and the most important thing is the writing.
0: Why are TV directors not treated as auteurs in the way that film directors are? I mean, it's certainly I think pilot directors should be right. I mean, again, it's the whole vision for the show.
2: It is that, but the, the television business there is the writer-producer, writer-executive-producer. So the writers run the operation. So you know, uh, sitcom directors and episodic directors are not, in the hierarchy, are not considered as important. I rail against that. I preach when I go to meetings at the Directors Guild. I say, this is no good And I, I don't want you guys, you guys who are coming up to fall into that. You have to be able to say what you want to say, give your ideas, please do not worry about your next job. Mm -hmm. It's to make the show as best as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's just the nature of the business. It's the nature of the hierarchy. So
0: how soon after you've gone to work on a pilot, can you tell if it's going to be picked up by the network or it's going to work with audiences?
2: I can tell, you know, I do a pilot schedule seven days. And on the fourth day, I have a run through in front of a live audience. Mm -hmm. I'll have one camera covering the set you can't see so the audience can see it. Mm -hmm. And I can tell pretty much from there. Really? Yeah.
0: The reason that you brought in a fourth camera for Taxi was because that set was so large?
2: The set was large and there was seven characters. Right. And so if you have seven of them sitting around the table... You, with three cameras, you just can't capture all the initial jokes. So I need an extra camera.
0: And the other, I guess, thing that came from Taxi was learning how to oversee shows with large ensembles, but also specifically with interesting personalities.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I always say that was my hardest show. I mean, I was dealing with, you know, people from different forms of entertainment, Andy. And Chris Lloyd and Tony Danza, who'd never done anything, and Judd and Mary Lou and Devito, Danny Devito from the theater. So there was all these things, plus the writers, who you know had to had you know Jim Brooks was doing a screenplay then, and so you know he had ideas, and Ed had ideas. Well, brilliant. It was just it was just trying to wrestle everything to get a show together for for. We shot that on Friday night, so it was just it was just really really difficult.
0: I've just seen recently the I don't know if you've happened to have caught it on Netflix, but this Jim Carrey documentary where they show him playing Tony yeah. Clifton. Uh-huh. Was that actually what it was like to deal with Andy when he was Tony Clifton?
2: Yeah, we dealt with him. It was only one show we dealt with him. Okay. Yeah, Andy had the agreement that if they if we got if we wanted Andy, he, we had to agree to allow Tony Clifton to do one show. <laughs> So, uh, I can tell you the exact date. I can tell you it was the day we started rehearsal, the day Bucky Dent hit the home run to beat the Red really? Sox. Yeah.
0: Were you just kind of baffled at what you were dealing with?
2: Well, Andy, was, Andy had day-night reversal. Andy was a comic who stayed up late at night. And then during taxi time, he would do taxi rehearsals, he would come in at 1 o'clock, and we would rehearse the stuff. He had a photographic memory, so you know, we were fine there. But for the Tony Clifton show... Tony was there at 9 a.m. So it was three days of wonderful, wonderful guerrilla theater. Right. It was marvelous. It was just it was just marvelous to watch.
0: What people sometimes forget is that Taxi wound up being canceled. What yeah. was that about?
2: Well, it was canceled because it didn't do any it didn't do ratings. Mm-hmm. Back in those days,
0: mm-hmm.
2: back in those days, were three networks. And if you didn't get a rating, you know, because it got a rating the first three years, but then started to fall off in the fourth year. And the fifth year, when it moved to NBC, which was our first year of Cheers, it was not getting the ratings that they needed.
0: But it still provided, I think you've said, some of the funniest moments that you've been associated with. Was there one in particular? Well,
2: yeah, Reverend Jim and the uh, what does the yellow light mean? Can you just share if anyone needs a proper reminder? Oh my God! <laughs> Chris Lloyd, who played Reverend Jim, was, believe it or not, in an episode the first year. Okay. He married Lodka and a hooker because they wanted to keep Lodka in the country. So he got him got a, They found a hooker and Jim, from the church of the peaceful, presided over the ceremonies. And we said, Oh my God, this guy's great. So we brought him back the next year. And uh, we brought him back in a famous episode where he talks about where he was, where he's at Woodstock. And they decide, he decides he wants to become a cabbie. So they take him for a test, the driving test, uh, actually the written test. Mm-hmm. And they help him fill out a forms. And he's, at one point he says, uh, it says eyes here. And they say, don't put two. <laughs> this episode was so funny that I had read it before we shot it on a plane going to New York. I was laughing so hard the stewardess asked me if everything was alright. <laughs> Literally. It was written by Glenn and Les Charles who right. went on to become my partner. Right. And so at some point at the end of that scene where he's taking the driver's written test, he goes over into an area and the four drivers who brought him down there are separated from him and he's taking the test and he says psst and they all look over he says what does a yellow light mean? and jeff conaway says slow down and he goes what does a yellow light mean and they say slow down he goes what so it went on for i think i let it go five times we only use three on the air right and jim brooks is still pissed at me for cutting it after five It was just—it was one of the biggest laughs I've ever heard. Right. And the great thing about it is, Chris Lloyd changed the performance each time he asked. Was a different intonation, and the four of them—you know, Mary Lou and Tony and Jeff and Judd—are looking at him, and they all reacted the right way. Nobody broke up. Tony couldn't laugh at him because Tony had that character had served in Vietnam, and he was pissed at Jim for being a draft dodger. So it was just a wonderful moment. That's
0: great. So Cheers starts in, in
2: 82,
0: and it started, as you referenced a moment ago, with the Charles brothers. You guys just kind of headed off on that show and decided to do another workplace comedy, or what was the impetus for, because I think it was during Taxi, you were a first, it must have been that you first started talking about Cheers.
2: We met on the Phyllis show. I was a resident director of the first year of Phyllis, and they were story editors. And then we met and then we reunited on Taxi. And we had the same agent, Bob Broder. And he said, you guys should do a show together. So we got a deal with NBC, a two for one. We would make two pilots and they put one on the air. So we started talking about a show. And during 81, I was doing a movie and they were still, I don't know what they were doing, whether they were still working on Taxi or not. I don't remember. But we got an office and we started talking and we hit on this idea we wanted to do a show since taxi was a show that took place in a in an area that people wanted to get out of (laughs) we wanted to do a show about a place people wanted to come into right and so we went through a lot of permutations our favorite show ever was faulty towers Mm -hmm. so we talked about a hotel doing a show in a hotel and then we talked about a bar then we talked about a bar in barstow because it would have all these vegas types Mm -hmm. going through it And then we settled on a sports bar, and then we settled on a sports bar in a rabid fan base town. Mm -hmm. And so we settled on Boston, and uh, the rest is history.
0: Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you one thing that I was wondering when I was prepping. One of your father's most successful radio shows was called Duffy's Tavern, which was set in a bar and became a hit. Is that purely coincidental? It is. Okay. Because I, I figured maybe you know it, it was an inspiration. It
2: is, and one of the, I'll tell you a great story about that. Because whenever you do a new show, you always get sued by people <laughs> said you stole their idea. Right. And we had it happened three or four times, and all, the excuse would be, "Get in line behind my dad." <laughs> That's good. You know, yeah, right. if you want to sue,
0: wait till he sues. Right. A couple other true or false things just about getting that show going. Sam was originally going to work for a woman.
2: Yeah, that was the original permutation. When this was June, May, and June of '81, we were pitching out a pilot, and we, you know we had this idea and everything like that. And the boys, uh, Glenn Ellis went off to uh, uh, Sam was working for a woman. Yeah, we thought the Lothario. Yes, that's a true statement.
0: And so it was because you decided to go with the adding the Shelley Long character that you didn't need a. It just changed the dynamics.
2: Yeah, and that was totally Glenn and Less. Okay. When when I went when they went away, I had no idea what they were doing and they came back with this script.
0: How about something else I heard which sounds almost too out there to be to be true, but Lucille Ball was almost gonna play Diane's mother?
2: We went to her house. And why was three that? How, of us. how did that come about? We lo- we thought she'd be great. We loved her. She was, you know, what a what a comedian and we, we sat with her and talked with her. And she didn't, she didn't want to do it. She turned us down.
0: But I had heard that she was actually... Maybe the impetus was that she was a declared fan of the show.
2: Oh, she liked the show. Otherwise, she wouldn't have met with us. Yeah. But uh, she had, go, maybe yeah. she was too nervous. I don't know.
0: You considered several pairings of actors and actresses before you got to Ted and Shelley. Why did you go with them? I think you had been familiar with Ted from... He'd gone out for an episode of a show, Best of the West, I think, that you'd done, and he'd he been on it. An, yeah, and been on an episode
2: of Taxi. But was that. Did you even remember any of that? He was on an episode of Taxi. We had already seen Ted before that, before the Taxi episode. Mm-hmm. I had auditioned him for Best of the West. So the boys didn't know about him, but I knew about him. He almost got Best of the West. But I think the Taxi episode happened. Whether we were considering him or not, I don't remember. Mm -hmm.
0: I think people now obviously remember Cheers as one of the great popular acclaimed shows of, of the last, you know, whatever, 35 years, 40 years, but and all time really, but it was not successful in the beginning. Can you remind people of how perilous it got as far as the ratings and then also why you think NBC kept it around?
2: Let's see. In the first year, we did not do very well. We were uh, we were opposite like shows like Simon and Simon and Magnum and ABC had comedies on against us. There was no reason to watch the show. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely no reason. You knew nobody on the show. Mm-hmm. We were on a Thursday night on Thanksgiving, and we were the lowest rated show on television that week. We were seventy second or something. like Yeah.
0: That. Oh my
2: God. And then what happened was. We had incredible reinforcement from Brandon Tartikoff, who was a big fan of the show, and Grant Tinker was running NBC then, mm-hmm. who had hired Glenn Less and myself at MTM. Mm-hmm. So, And we had the press. Yeah. Back then, there was no fake news. <laughs> there was nothing like that. The press was... They're no different back then than they are now. Right, right. And they loved us. Yep. And so... In the summer, they rerun shows, mm-hmm. so everybody had seen Simon, Simon and and Magnum in the normal yeah. season, and so they went shopping and they found this little show, on NBC, and we were at one point in the summer we we finished the week ranked ninth, which was great. Mm-hmm. Then the Emmys,
0: yeah, which you guys were immediately yeah well we, received.
2: We were you know we were. Was huge at the Emmys, and then the following year we did better, and then the third beginning of third year Cosby came on, mm-hmm. and the Cosby to Family Ties to Cheers to I don't remember. They had a couple of shows after Madman, Night Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't remember that.
0: That was the beginning of what they called Must See TV. No,
2: Must See TV started in '82. With Fame first, it was Taxi, then Cheers, then Hill Street Blues. Yeah, yeah, Hill Street.
0: So. Originally, you guys were not the staple of that branded kind of idea of you know this is the reason to tune in on Thursday nights. No, no, it evolved. Evolved, and it had to evolve through some things that most shows don't normally deal with. You had two premature exits of principal cast members from the show, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Coach died,
2: uh-huh.
0: and then at the end of what season five, you had. Diane leave right did you think to yourself when these things happened that this could derail
2: the whole enterprise we thought when Shelly when Shelley left the show we were concerned we were concerned about what to do we were scared then you know that was the dynamo that drove the show was Sam and Diane mm-hmm. and so we were really concerned we got lucky we went back the boys went back to the original conception Sam working for a woman the first actress we saw was Kirstie Alley. And then, like, the first house you see, you never buy. Right. So we went looking and looking, and right. we couldn't find any better. Right. So we got lucky there. And when Coach passed away... Which was earlier, right? Which was third. Nick got sick in the third year. Mm-hmm. In the fourth year, we, we were following family ties, so we made a concerted effort to get a young buck in there <laughs> because we wanted, because Michael Fox was so hot. Right. We wanted to get some of that audience. So we had this kid we loved. We had this kid who looked like a scarecrow. <laughs> we loved him. He was, you know, kind of reedy and, you know, he's, you know, real corn. He looked like a corn kid. Yeah, yeah. And we were loved him and then, Woody Harrelson walked in the room, <laughs> and everybody went, oh, my God. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and the the fact that he's called Woody, uh, that was just coincidental. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Les Charles has said something that I want to ask you about If you if you agree with or if you can explain a little more. He said, quote, we started doing continuing stories and cliffhangers and evolving relationships and so on, and we may have been partly responsible for what's going on now, where if you miss the first episode or two, you're lost. That was not the tradition of sitcoms.
2: No. We were the first ones. You had this tempestuous relationship and you couldn't keep it on tempestuous. You couldn't keep it on the same level. So the boys would paint themselves into a corner at the end of every year. You know? Because you wanted new ways to, to do the relationship. You wanted that to happen. You wanted the characters in the bar to react to it different ways. So you always had to like I like to say, zoom it up, mm-hmm. and you know, and we've got we got Kelsey Grammer because of that, because at the end of the second year, we had Chris Lloyd do a guest appearance as a crazy artist, <laughs> who Diane falls for and right. goes off, and we started the third year with uh, Diane. Her shrink, right? Yeah, coming out of Looney bit. <laughs> um, and her shrink was
0: a man named Kelsey Grammer, right? <laughs> and also that idea of approaching the sitcom differently that's also i think you guys were probably the first of what now is often copied rarely if ever equal but this idea of will they or won't they get together right yeah and in fact to have them get together a lot of people were surprised right
2: they hate us the beginning of the year at the beginning of the second year when the network hated. No, no. The critics, the critics hated. You got Sam and Diane together. I mean, you know, the, the, remember Howard Rosenberg who was a critic at the LA Times, just excoriating us for doing it. <laughs> you know, and you know they chose like on Glenn, Karen Gordon, mm-hmm. on Moonlight. He never did that, but we felt we just if you know they didn't sleep together the whole first year, and we right. felt if Sam Malone can't bet a woman in a year,
0: <laughs> what right. kind of stud is right. he? <laughs> and for similar. Reasons of having to shake things up. That's why you would do something that others might have been scared to do later on, like have on friends, Ross and Rachel break up, right?
2: Right, right. You got to keep it interesting. You got to keep it interesting.
0: Well, I think in terms of the way you approach your job, something else changed with chairs. Back then, there were not monitors on sets, right? Right. And I wonder how that impacted the audience experience at a at a taping, but also how it impacted what you do today? Because we constantly hear about the fact there are a lot of TV directors who just kind of stay by the monitors and you very famously do not. So can you explain what that's all about?
2: Well, back in the old days, we had no, as you said, we had no television monitors. So I had to go around during camera blocking, which is the day before we shoot, and make sure the shots I assigned to the camera that they were getting them. So I had to look at all the cameras. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I shot the show, I would be like a, uh, you know, I'd be on stage kind of watching the cameras out of my corner of my eyes, see if they were pointing the right mm-hmm. way, but I didn't know what shots they had. And so I watched the performance and listened to the performance more. But then with the advent of, um, you can do a video feed through a camera now so that you can have monitors and you can watch them. All the cameras at all once. All the cameras at once. And... Uh, I never really did that till about 10 years ago. I kind of, I used to stand and pace and everything like that, but you know, I'm getting a little younger, so (laughs) I tend to sit now and watch the monitor occasionally. It's just easier for me than going around to looking behind all the cameras.
0: But when you were, and maybe still when you are not looking at monitors, what a lot of actors, including several who we've had on here for various episodes have remarked upon is that you're not even necessarily looking at the action at all. Forget about looking at a monitor or a camera. You can be looking at the ground pacing around. What are you doing when that's happening? I'm listening. And that's something you learn where?
2: From my dad. My dad used to say when he was doing a play, he used to say he'd walk backstage. He'd walk back and forth. And if he heard a pause, he knew we were in trouble because there was nobody, there was no dance in the show. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So I listen for the rhythms. I listen to be able to, if an actor trips up on a line to on the way to a joke, mm-hmm. aborting that moment, I'll go up, 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 so the audience doesn't hear the punchline. That doesn't make sense because the setup was wrong. Right. So I try, I try to do that because it's theater. Uh, I, what I do is theater, only I'm filming theater, so... A joke is funny the first time the audience hears it. The second time, it's not so much that funny because there's no surprise involved. Right.
0: And people, you know, have to remember that with multicam shows, there are these live audiences, and they they may be there for how long? Four hours. Is there a trick to keeping them engaged beyond not making them hear the same joke over and over again?
2: Well, we do every scene twice. We change the jokes between the scenes. There was a warm-up man. We have a guy named Roger Lundblade on, on Will & Grace mm-hmm. who has a routine that they love and they dance and mm-hmm. they sing. And the final thing he does between scenes is he plays uh, Don't Stop Believing and has the whole audience singing. So he, you know, we can and the cast will talk to the audience. Mm-hmm. You got to keep them alive. You feed them. Yeah. But they, they're there because they love the show. Right. So
0: in the now 25 years, if, if you can believe it, since chairs went off the air, what are the biggest things about TV that have changed? And the, the, just in terms of you going about your job.
2: I still think for me, it's kind of the same. What I do, I try to attach myself to a show I love so that I, I have fun because if I have fun, it's gonna filter down to the cast. And, but the nature of the business has changed. You, you don't do as many shows as you used to do. There are, you know, 200 times the number of venues there were when when there were only three networks. Mm -hmm. You can do really niche shows now. You don't have to, you know, ratings are not that important anymore in cable because you make a nickel for every viewer watching a month. Ratings are important in network television, but they're harder to get. It's just a more diverse universe now, so... It doesn't, you know, I still enjoy what I do. I love doing shows. I love doing pilots. I love working with people, with new people. I love working with people I, I've i worked with before. and
0: I've heard that networks today will give less time for a show to grow and find an audience. Like, Cheers would have been off the air, right? If it was on a broadcast network.
2: If NBC had anything else, it would have been off the yes. air. But they had nothing. Nothing they, else that time. No, they didn't. They'll tell you, they, <laughs> you know. They still get yanked. They still get yanked early. You know, CBS is, you know, they've yanked shows in the third or fourth weeks. So if it doesn't get a pulse, they'll yeah. yank it. So.
0: How about notes from executives or suits or whatever you choose to call them? I mean, I've heard that sort of to justify paychecks or salaries or whatever, you people, they get more and more of those. Does
2: even Jim Burroughs get notes from from execs? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. You get... Uh, we don't get it so much on Will and Grace anymore. But any pilot or any show you're starting out, you get notes, and the easiest thing is hear them out. You don't, as a writer, I always tell my writers, you don't have to do them if they don't feel what you what you. I'll try to protect his vision, mm-hmm. but you don't have to do them if they don't feel right to you. You have you're doing your own show. The problem with network notes is it's all about imitation. They know what's gone before. Mm-hmm. So their notes about what's safe and what's gone before their notes are not about what could be exciting, you know, and yeah, I, literally on Will and Grace on the pilot episode, I got a note from a network executive that said too many gay jokes.
0: <laughs> That's the original incarnation. Yes. Yeah. You only tried movie directing. I think that one time that you referenced earlier, this is a movie that came out in 1982 partners. Why don't you do it more?
2: my head is not into movies i just i like getting instant results from the time i read till the time it goes in front of an audience i don't like waiting two years Mm -hmm. i like when i create being able to capture the comedy in one take whereas in movies you got to shoot a master and then close ups and you got to recreate it sometimes it's hard i just don't like the pay i never like the pace of movies
0: were you concerned when Cheers came to an end in 1993 that it would potentially be risking the legacy of Cheers by going and doing a spinoff of of Frasier? You know, did, was that something, or at that point, did you just say, "We've got to," you know, "we've we've had so much success with this first thing, why not try to keep it going in some form?"
2: Angel Casey and Lee wrote a brilliant script that was totally different than Cheers. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a spinoff that had nothing to do with the bar. It just took this character. It literally took this character, made him into a leading man, and got his brother, David Hyde Pierce, Niles, mm-hmm. to play Frazier, mm-hmm. The permutation of Frasier on Cheers. Yeah. And that was brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a great time working on it.
0: 32 episodes yeah. between 93 and 97 you directed. Was it then... After Frasier, or what point did you become the go-to guy for pilots?
2: I did a couple of pilots before that. I did Night Court, which was a big success, Mm -hmm. and one other. I started to get these scripts, uh, either based on Cheers or based on Cheers and Frasier. Mm -hmm. I started to get all the comedy scripts coming my way. So I was smart enough to pick the right ones. Uh, I... I formed a small production company, yep. and I hated developing, so I stopped that. But I yep. got, you know, I did three or four pilots the year after that in 94. I, oh, I did radio, mm-hmm. and I had done uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and then I did, then I got this script for, uh, I was doing three pilots this one year, and I got this script for Friends, <laughs> and I said to my agent, Mr. Broder, I said, I wanna do the show. He says, you have no time. And I said, no, I wanna do the show. So I literally worked a couple of weekends and you know, it was just fortuitous that I had the sense to pick these scripts that became really interesting, good show.
0: No, it's amazing. And actually I I wanna just share with listeners a line that I still laugh about. There was the night that you were honored, I guess, I think it was the career achievement award by the DGA. And somebody said, quote, James Burroughs has made more pilots than a hooker at an airport hotel.
2: That was good. My partners, Glenn and Charles. They said
0: that. Okay. That
2: was they rough. also said. <laughs> I will tell you another thing they said, which I don't think I've ever said on the air. Brandon Tartikoff did a a fiftieth video for me when I was fifty years old. Right. He did a video and he interviewed a lot of people. He interviewed Charles Brothers, and believe it or not, I was Mitzford when I was forty-seven years old. Really? Yeah. I was. Uh, my parents were somewhat agnostic. I was yeah. raised Jewish, yeah. but but when I never went to shul or High Holy Days. But with my first wife, uh, she was conservative, so I started doing that. Mm -hmm. So I decided to be Bar Mitzvahed. And so (laughs) they said on this 50th tape, they said I was the only man they knew that was Bar Mitzvahed at 47 and lost his hair at 13. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. That made me laugh.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) One other line which was said much you know, more genuinely or more seriously rather was Warren Littlefield, who his title, I guess, was vice president of production at NBC when you were. Vice president of comedy. Vice president of comedy. Well, he had said in 1995, quote, when we look at our shows, some come with a JS next to them, like an asterisk. That's for Jimmy's show. He's our heavyweight, our not so secret weapon. We'd like as much Jimmy Burroughs as we can get, close quote. That was the year after the pilot season that resulted in both ER and Friends, you, obviously, doing Friends. Were you involved in terms of casting the big six for that, or were they already on board?
2: I was busy doing other pilots, but I would go in when I could for casting. I knew about Schwimmer, because mm-hmm. Schwimmer had done a pilot called Monty mm-hmm. that I had done, and Marta and David knew about Schwimmer. Mm-hmm. I was not there for Matt or Matt Perry. Lisa, I knew, because she was on a Cheers. Mm-hmm. I think I was there for Courtney, and Courtney wanted to play Rachel. <laughs> she did, so um, how did that resolve itself?
0: I mean, obviously, we know how it resolved yeah. itself, but how did it work she was out?
2: better for she was better for uh, Monica. Did you make that call? No, I think Marta and David, did. yeah, and then Jen and I didn't when I showed up at the for the reading, the first reading, Jen was there
0: okay. LeBlanc and Schwimmer on this podcast have both separately talked about a trip to Vegas that you <laughs> took them on and they remember every detail of it and I wonder if you
2: can give your version of what happened. It never happened. It never <laughs> There, <it's> Fake news. <laughs> fake news. This is 94. I, I I think I did the first four uh, friends because it was so, you know, I, I had my own company hmm And, but the show was so special that I wanted to do it. So I did the first four and after the second one, I said to Les Moonves, who was then head of uh, Warner Brothers Television, I said, can I take the kids to Vegas? All six of them.
0: This is after the show has been given a green light, but before any episodes of air? No
2: episodes are on the air. Okay. And he says, sure. So I said, I'll tell you what, you pay for the plane, I'll pay for dinner. (laughs) And so he agreed. And I flew to six of them in Vegas, and we had dinner at Wolfgang Puck's, uh, Spago, and Caesars. And I sat six of them around. We were having a great time, everything like that. And I don't know where it came from. I, I knew how special the show was. I said to the six of them, this is your last shot at anonymity. From now on, once that show hits the air, it's all over. No, oh, no, you're kidding me. No, no. I said, it's all over. And I was prophetic. I, I I don't know. You know. Were you
0: trying to warn them or dissuade?
2: What I was, was trying to warn them? Yeah. And it was interesting walking through the casinos. They were. I heard you gave them each five hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> you know. They all wrote me checks, <laughs> and I still should have the checks on the wall. Right. Right. You know, it's it's that my dad used to tell me that back in the old days, in the thirties and forties, mm-hmm. when people would drive across the United States, and when Hollywood people stars like Cary grant or or uh, clark gable would drive across when they fill up their cars with gas at a local station on the way they would write a check mm-hmm. and there would never be cash. <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> it would be on the wall right right you and know that's not going to
0: be deposited I yeah. know.
2: <laughs> so in hindsight i should have but it was wonderful they they were they love one another so mm-hmm. much on that show and that was you know i i but you I cultivated encu- that. I encourage that. Yeah. I encourage. I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do all the shows, and I knew how talented these kids were, and I knew how good the writing was. Martin David wrote the best scripts ever. But how do you cultivate that?
0: Because that's part of what makes, I think, you different from just any other director. You have a, seem to have a way with actors, and maybe it's something you reuse on different pilots. I don't know, or maybe there was something specific with Friends, for instance. But why did they click when especially when pretty quickly people start renegotiating salaries and then it's a matter of with such a big show who's the star who's the bigger star how did you
2: guys keep
0: a lid on all of that and and get along
2: i had some clout because of cheers before cheers when i did pilots i didn't have a lot of clout but after cheers and after fraser i had this clout and so they liked me and they would walk the comic playing for me and they would listen to me as opposed to a lot of people who didn't mm-hmm. and th- i would say to them you guys are in a lifeboat you're in a lifeboat you're all really gifted you all have great ideas you seem to like one another you need to cultivate that and you need to you need to 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 keep that and and depend on one another and you know you help one another when another director comes in it, it, you know it's going to be different than me I'm not saying he's going to be less talented or more talent. He's going to be different. But don't let that stop you from creating ideas and talking to him and telling him what you feel and everything like that. And, you know, the, what the great thing they did is they negotiated together. Mm-hmm. There were no individual negotiations, mm-hmm. which is smart.
0: But you would do things like let them play poker in your office before oh, taping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They would have lunch together every day, yeah. at least the women, I think. Do you have a, any thoughts about whether people in on a show together should or should not date each other?
2: I don't think that's a good idea, but, you know, if it happens. You it don't hap- have, like,
0: a, a rule no, against no, it or no, whatever. No. Marta Kaufman was on this podcast, and we were trying to get to the root of what makes you so good. And same with Warren. And I want to read you a quote that each of them said. Marta said, quote, He only stayed with us for the first season, but he is extraordinary. He understands physical humor more than anybody. He knows how to give someone a physical action that will enhance what is going on dramatically. He is a wonderful director. Close quote. Warren added, quote, His work with the actors is sensational. He knows how to tell an actor, No, don't push the ball with your left hand. Push it with your right. And somehow that's funnier. He is remarkable, and the actors trust him. But his work is equally strong with the writers. Throughout the week of rehearsal and running a show, he is able to say to the writers... We need this and this, and I think we are missing this. He is directing the writing staff as well as the actors with equal strength. It is magic. There is no must-see TV on NBC without Jimmy Burroughs, close quote. The physical comedy, was that something that
2: your father specialized in too? No. No, I don't think so. You're just born with that. You're born with the sense of this looks funnier this way, say this joke, walking out of the room, do this, doing that, you know when i got taxi and i had worked with jim and ed and stan and dave and uh, you know i don't know why i got it but i heard a story that um i directed a show for rob reiner called free country which is about jews on the lower east side mm-hmm. you know it was rob wrote it and created it, it was a wonderful show and it you know, only lasted six episodes but i did two or three episodes and in one of the episodes, I had this bit, and the bit was Judy Kahn, who played the wife, was afraid to go out in the streets of New York. And there was a whole episode about going out in the streets of New York. And she grabs, there was a high back chair, she grabs that chair with all the determination and says, I'm going. And as she goes, the chair goes with her. <laughs> so I heard, and I don't know, again, if it's apocryphal, I heard, that Jim Brooks had seen that and asked Rob who did that, and I'm friends with Jim and I'm friends with Rob, and again, it's maybe uh, the story has changed over the amount of time, but that's just—I I don't know why I thought of that. I went through a lot of other shit yeah. getting to that moment, yeah. but for some reason, that that popped into my head. Yeah, yeah, it's a gift, and uh, I'm lucky I have it.
0: Friends, you left after that first season to go focus on this show from your own production company, Carolyn in the City. Then it looks like there were these other things you were doing in those years between when you left Friends and when you started Will & Grace. So seven episodes of News Radio, two episodes of Third Rock from the Sun, others as well. You talked about Will & Grace already, but I want to ask you, so it sounds like the version that I've heard is Warren Littlefield, who we were just talking about, tells the Creators, Cohan and Muchnick of Will and Grace, the creators, to meet with you about the pilot. They say at the time they wanted, they're thinking, we need a a younger guy. How are we going to connect with each other? And then, and basically that as a sign of respect or courtesy, they took that initial. They wanted to have that initial meeting with you. And then in the end, you ended up directing every single episode of the original incarnation. That's I I don't even remember how many, two hundred one ninety four. And now, you know, 11 years after that went off the air, you came back and are still doing as of today even and certainly the foreseeable future, the reboot of Will and Grace. So what happened that made this in a way a situation that wasn't in any way
2: meant to click, click? Uh, I have a way. I'm char- I'm charming. Yeah. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a martinet when I direct or right. you know. I I met with the boys. They thought they were auditioning me. Right. I was auditioning them. Right. <laughs> because again, as I say, I want writers to defend their material. I don't want them to be defensive about their material. If I say something, I don't think something's funny. I don't want them to say to me, "No, it's funny." Mm-hmm. I want them to say why, and what do you think, and maybe I put a bug in there or something like that. So I met with them, and I had a couple of notes, which the rest is history. They took the notes, and I think it helped the first show. But they're the creators and the writers of that show. They've done a brilliant job. They've created four characters, has not been seen on television before.
0: When you say they created and I know that's nice to share the credit, and they certainly were obviously instrumental, but you talk to those actors and they've said that, I guess during the making of the pilot, you gave each of them a little key to their character that guided them ever since. Do you remember what those were? I don't remember. Supposedly Jack and Karen were supposed to be very childlike. That was going to be a central, just the idea of maintain the childlike disposition. Will's going to be Think of yourself as a leading man as that kind of a character and with grace that she should be a latter-day lucille ball is that plausible
2: i think that was not not me necessarily but yeah. all of us mm-hmm. i always felt about this show that this show is a fairy tale literally and figuratively mm-hmm. it's a show that plays in a hyper reality it's a show that you can do stuff you can't do on any other show because there's an innocence to this show it's a non-threatening show that deals with issues that are threatening mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that was, I mean, that was my vision, and that's the boys' vision. They 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 understand that. I, You know, we keep Jack in his, Jack Purcells in his little sweater vests. You know, you keep Karen dressed and dolled up. Mm-hmm. You keep Grace, Scatterbrage, and you keep Will, uh, you know, as the rock of the show, but you know, it's an important show. It was a really important show. Well, so is that the you've
0: said, and I don't know what the context was, so I'll give you the chance to say if this is still the case, but you've said that that's the show that you're proudest of. And is that because of artistic things that happen? Is it because of the impact of the show? People will remember that at the time he was vice president, Joe Biden said that that's the show that paved the way for gay marriage, things like that. So why is that the one that if you maybe had to in a fire, save one, that's Uh, the one?
2: Well, I would save Cheers first. Okay. Cheers is my baby, I get a co-created credit on that show. That's from my bowels. Mm -hmm. This show, Will & Grace, is the funniest show I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Far and away the funniest Mm -hmm. show. Jokes you can do on this show, you can't do on any other show. Mm -hmm. And probably the one that has had an impact on the way we live more than anything else. Mm And I'm, I'm proud of that and I'm proud of Max and David for, for having that vision. I never have done in my life a, a show that proselytizes. Mm-hmm. Norman does those. Norman Lear does those better than anybody else. But this show, I used to drive carpool on Thursday and the show would be on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And it was kids. Uh, the kids were 13 or 14 years old when they get in the car. And I would drive on Thursday. And they would always ask me on the way to school, other kids, not my, not my own, one of my own and others, mm-hmm. what's going to be on Will and Grace tonight? <laughs> and I said to myself, oh, my God. Yeah. We're educating 13- and 14-year-olds mm-hmm. to yeah. be okay with these people. So, I mean, that's what I'm proud of, of that show. Yeah, And, uh, you know, I, we still do it.
0: You directed the pilot of The Big Bang Theory which is one of the last huge multicam ratings generators that is out there. Also, Mike and Molly was one. You did that as well. Both are Chuck Laurie shows for CBS under Les Moonves, who was, I guess, a believer in multicam. He's gone. A lot of these shows are gone. Why are multicam shows? They, they try a few every year, it seems, and some of them last longer than others, but why are they under threat now? I saw one quote that single-camera shows are admired and multi-camera shows are watched,
2: but there are fewer <laughs> and fewer of them. Uh, that's that was that was always, you know, when 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 Cheers came on the air, The Mash was the show. Yeah, it was a single-camera show, mm-hmm. you know. And then let's put it this way: I have been at the death of multi-camera comedy four or five times. <laughs> And we always seem to come back. I admire, you know, I have a great working relationship with Chuck. He's a genius at what he does. Mm-hmm. He's funny and great with story and hard, good stories. And he keeps it going. He has two on the air and he'll have more. And CBS is a champion of them. And NBC now has Will and Grace. And hopefully others will happen. It's just... and you know, When you do multi-camera shows, you have to be funnier than doing single-camera shows. Because... You have to appeal to an audience.
0: And you never use a laugh track, right? No, we never do. The last thing we do here is just called Rapid Fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind, if you can. Who's the best TV director of all time not named James Burroughs?
2: Jay Sanders. Comedy. Bob Butler in drama.
0: Everyone's doing reboots now. You guys are doing it with Will and Grace. How do you feel about the phenomenon overall?
2: What I like to say is you can go homo again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's good. That's really good. What's the show that you didn't work on that you most wish you did?
2: Curb Your Enthusiasm. I wish I would worked on that show.
0: What's the main thing that you can convey to young directors who come to you and ask to shadow you, as I believe David Schwimmer did on Will and & Grace and Jason Bateman did on The Hogan Family and maybe probably many others? What's the main thing you hope to impart on a up-and-coming director?
2: Please, please don't be intimidated by the writers. Say what you feel, say what you believe. You have your job is not to be a traffic cop. Your job is to make the best funniest show possible.
0: In a message board, somebody made an observation that I have to ask you about, if there if there's any rhyme or reason behind this. On many shows that you've worked on, the spouse of a main character is never actually seen by the audience. Norm Peterson's wife, Vera, on Cheers, Niles Crane's wife, Maris on Frasier, Karen Walker's husband, Stanley on Will and Grace. Phyllis Lindstrom's husband, Lars, on Mary Tyler Moore. Then these are not spouses, but the same thing happens with Carlton, the doorman, on Rhoda, Louis De Palma's mother on Taxi. Is this just purely coincidental, or is this sort of your little wink, your Hitchcock cameo?
2: It's coincidental, and we saw Louis' mother. There you go. Um, it was played actually by Danny's mother.
0: So that's been rebutted. Does it make sense for pilot season? to actually exist in the way that it does now. It's financially or otherwise. Isn't it a little bit crazy?
2: It is. It is. But that's why I do a run-through in front of an audience before I actually film the show. I think you need, to, you need people who sit and judge, don't know what's funny, unless they're in a room of people, ordinary people, to let them know. Mm-hmm. And even myself. Mm-hmm. I think I know what's funny, and then I'm surprised. So... You know, I don't know about dramas that much or anything like that, but I think, I think you need to try it out. Finally,
0: doing what you do, you've made a very nice living. You've won every award there is for your profession. You're now considered, I think, universally the, the best at it. What keeps you doing it as opposed to playing golf or sleeping or doing whatever else you would enjoy doing? Why keep at it?
2: If I don't use that part of my brain, I will go sallow. I I really will. I I know the days the hiatuses when I have off, when I don't travel, I don't I lay around the house. I don't have that much initiative. I need you know when I when my wife and I travel, right. I I do, but I just I need to laugh. Mm-hmm. I need to have a good time. I need to go somewhere where people are having fun and you know, and not, it's not that I don't have fun at home, but it's just I need that. That's the, an essential part of my life.
0: Awesome. Well, I hope you do it forever. I really appreciate you doing this and thanks for taking the time.
2: Absolutely. Thank you you so much.
0: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com
2: slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.